Welcome investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamotko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Hey, podcast listeners, welcome to the show. On today's special episode of the podcast, we welcome SPAC guru, Jeff from SPAC Warrants, and Jeremy Tarika of Forest Road talking about the state of the market. The discussion touches on current economic and market conditions, expected liquidations and the effect on SPAC warrants, sector rotation and what we expect from mergers, the future of the SPAC asset class, and more. So with no further ado, here's State of the Markets 6. All right. Welcome, everybody, to State of the Markets 6, the future of SPACs. Got a few guests with me today. I'm just adding them here, so give me a second. What's going so on? We, Hey, Jeremy, how are you doing? We got uh, Jeremy Tarika from Forest Road. We got the SPAC guru, and we have Jeff from SPAC Warrants. How are you guys doing today? Happy Friday. Good to be back here. Hello, Julian. Hello, Jeremy. Hello, Jeff, and everybody else who's listening. No, same here. Hello, everybody. Good to, good to see everybody. It's been a long time. Yeah, so back by tremendous audience request. They wanted an update. What's going on? What are the state of the markets? So I'm excited to get in, into that today. I want to keep the discussion uh, to about 45 minutes and then allow for a 15-minute Q&A so we can get to audience questions after. So let's kick things off. And I'm really amped up about the current market environment because we have a lot of volatility. Uh, I saw yesterday the S&P 500 bottom ticked down 19.9%, just a hair short of an official bear market. But Q1... GDP negative. So many concern that the Fed is tightening into a recession. But I was just thinking today, what if the Fed has already tightened into a recession? Nonetheless, the market expecting two more 50 basis point rate hikes this summer and continuing until the end of the year, such that the uh, Fed funds rate to be in what, 250, 300 basis points. So massive, massive interest rate headwinds with that. Bonds have been crushed. I believe year to date, bonds have had their worst performance ever. <laughs> I mean, talk about the 60-40 portfolio getting absolutely crushed. Bonds, worst performance ever. Not too surprising given the move in interest rates. I remember we had one of these calls, State of the Markets, last summer, and the tenure was at 50 basis points, right? And now we're like well above... Uh, or right around 300 basis points. Uh, we breached 300 basis points just recently, but significantly off the load. So huge headwinds for fixed income investors, especially with uh, duration, uh, which has massive implications. Saw that on the equity side as well with the NASDAQ and growth equities. More of the speculative stuff coming down pretty significantly and areas uh, to focus on the call today with the VIX at around 30, signaling a lot of volatility. But with that volatility, 
comes opportunity. And I'm just saying a, a tremendous amount of opportunities out there from the perspective of an arbitrager. So I tweeted a, a couple charts this week that I thought were very, very interesting. First, on the merge arbitrage side, uh, merge arbitrage yields are their highest basically since March of 2020. And the average merge arbitrage yield is about 16.5%. And it only breached that level for two weeks during the back half of March 2020, when we thought this thing could really go off the rails. Not quite as extreme these days, but we are seeing a lot of stresses in the market there. Despite not really seeing anything on the corporate action front, we're still seeing a significant amount of M&A deals announced. I think we saw over half a dozen announced this week. Then on the SPAC side, we talk a lot of analytics there. IPOs, well, they have slowed. They're still happening. I mean, we have seen half a dozen SPAC IPOs month to date. So in the first two weeks of May, we've seen six SPAC IPOs raising about a billion dollars. So it's still business as usual. We have seen a number of business combinations, the most recent being a Kensington Capital Acquisition announcing that Amprius deal just, uh, I believe that was yesterday. And that one IPO'd relatively recently, just in March. So three months out of the gate, Justin Miro coming out with a deal. And we've seen other SPAC deals as well with that grinder business combination coming out a few days ago. In addition, on the SPAC side, a few more analytics for you. So total arbitrage profit pool, we see that 98% of SPACs are trading below their net asset value, and the total arbitrage profit pool is north of $4.3 billion, one of the highest aggregate amounts on record. Wouldn't be a discussion without commenting on SPAC warrants, which I know a lot of people like to play in now. My God, has have those been demolished year to date? The average SPAC warrant down to $0.26, cents, which is a, a real sad state of affairs, market signaling, significant redemptions forecast just with respect to SPAC prices. Average SPAC down about two-thirds year to date putting it on par with the uh, ARK Innovation ETF, which is you know, pretty frightening. Um, but yeah, I definitely want to have a discussion on SPAC warrants, on liquidations. The average SPAC discount is now nearly 2%, the widest on record. Uh, and that's another point that I wanted to talk to. And then um, you know, just on the corporate action side, like I said, kind of business as usual. We're still seeing IPOs. We are still seeing business combinations. However, we have seen a few liquidations year-to-date. There have been four this year, which is another interesting conversation of what are we going to see for liquidations? And then also deal terminations. We have seen those increase as well. So a lot to talk about today. That is my sort of introduction speech setting the stage for the discussion. So let's kick things off with the SPAC guru. What are your thoughts on the state of the market? Well, if we're talking about overall market, you know, what I've been focusing on mostly lately has been the the SPY, the Qs, and the VIX. Because, you know, if you watch those, th- those three things and you watch them closely enough, they kind of give you a real-time 
understanding of of where we're at as far as um people's people's mentality um fear greed worry all that good stuff and one of the interesting things that i've been doing is being i've just focused on those three those three names is i i put up charts on them all but i look at all of the charts in different times so for example the the vix the spy and the cues i'll i have running simultaneously the one minute bars candles the the 15 minute uh, bar candles and um you know sometimes i run the fives and sometimes i just run other screens but what you get is you get the, you get the tail of two cities you get the the micro in the moment type trade that something can look very bullish on one chart and and look quite the opposite on another chart so what i've actually been doing is I've enlarged my my RSI, and I actually have been charting the RSI the same way that people chart the the candles on the actual underlying asset. So where some people will, may chart a, a SPY and, and try to see if it's going to stay in a channel, I've been doing that as well with the RSIs. And again, when you when you look at them in these two different lenses as a as a one minute candle and a 15 minute candle and you don't even have to go back far right now my spy i, I have my spy going back you know only a few days and we're, we're showing a 41480 high and a 38515 low and if we're looking at that 15 minute chart on the spy we see an incredible v-shaped recovery you know textbook v-shaped recovery in the last few days and what I said the other day, straight up is straight down. Well, in this situation, straight down came straight up. So there's a lot of different ways to to you know play this market. And I know that this is a, a talk about SPACs, but this is more of a macro type view because SPACs have always kind of been their own little niche type asset class. And you know, when you start looking at things like crypto and the indices and, you know, growth and ARC and DSPAC companies. And then you can start looking at other things that were hot, hot deals like, um, like Dutch brothers. And, and you can look at things like, you know, DraftKings from the past. And, and then if you go and you, and you, you run a chart of Rivian versus Lucid, you know, I put up a chart the other day about how the both of them um, looked, but what the, what the market capitalization was on both of them. And it seemed as if Rivian may have been the better deal, if you will, just based on valuation. Now, guys will hate me and at me about the technologies and all that type of thing, but I'm not even considering any of that. I'm just looking dollar for dollar. So I've said enough for now. That's that's a lot to unpack. So let me know what, what you want to discuss on there, Julian, if anything. Thank you, G. And we will return to that. Jeremy, I wanted to get... Your thoughts on the on the state of the market, specifically what you're seeing on the SPAC sponsor side? Well, I would just say the two intros so far have been incredibly comprehensive. So I think you guys covered a lot of ground. But obviously, for those who know me and have followed kind of what we're up to at Forest Road, we do a broad amount of investing. So the markets and the state of the markets is critical to all facets of what we're up to. But we are a SPAC sponsor and we have a second SPAC in the market. That's a $350 million SPAC. And in short, it is a bloodbath out there. I think SPACs in general are 
reflecting the broader markets and almost were a leading indicator of a lot of issues with the market. We've seen massive sell-off in SPACs and overall disinterest in the product and the asset class. And you know, I think what we have been doing as a firm is trying to get a grasp on the SEC, which is a whole nother topic we could dive into, just the, the rule proposal from the SEC around changes to the product, which will have a massive ripple effect on many different things and have already had a massive ripple effect. So for us, we are uh, have don't have a deal announced uh, yet. We're still working. We're out in the market. We have a very unique perspective as a sponsor looking for a deal. And uh, I can expand on many different parts of it, but I would just say we... Uh, we feel the pain in the market. I do think that there are brighter times ahead and these downturns generally lead to amazing buying opportunities, but I don't think we've seen the bottom just yet. Jeremy, on that real quick, what do you think will be a good bottom signal in terms of you know, getting to the next stage of the cycle, perhaps a new bull market? What sort of signals do you look for? Well, it's a really good question. I would say for a lot of people, we've been monitoring this inflation issue for a while. I think it's obviously been on everyone's radar for two years now, because when you print this trillions and trillions of capital, that capital needs to go somewhere. And we've seen it's gone into stocks and all assets. and um, Really, I think we're monitoring, we're just really following the consumer. And when groceries are up 20, 30% year over year, and that starts to hit regular people across the country and gas is this high, I think it's just concerning. So I would say the signals we're looking for is kind of a stabilizing of just consumer confidence uh, in, in the economy and a stabilizing of just consumer goods overall, that can hopefully be the real uh, leading indicator of where we are in, in cycle. And now a word from our sponsor, Accelerate, one of Canada's most innovative and fastest growing alternative investment solution providers. With a suite of institutional caliber alternative ETFs for investors seeking diversification and long-term performance, the Accelerate One Choice Alternative Portfolio ETF, symbol 1C, ONEC on the TSX is Canada's first alternatives portfolio solution, providing exposure to six alternative asset classes, 10 alternative strategies in one easy to use, one choice ETF that charges a management fee of just 0.2%. The Accelerate One Choice Alternative Portfolio ETF trades under the symbol 1CONEC on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. That's a good point. I swear when I go to the grocery store each week, my bill is at least $100 more than it used to be each and every time. And you pointed to a tremendous amount of money printing quantitative easing. should point out that the U.S. Treasury did print roughly uh, or an increase of $6 trillion in M2 money supply in the U.S. So it's not surprising. We're having 8.3% CPI print, but I digress. Jeff, what do you think 
your perspective, state of the market specifically, what are you seeing on the warrant side? I know it's been a tough market. Absolute bloodbath. I mean, you can put lipstick on a pig, but but at the end of the day, uh, absolute bloodbath. You know, there there are some bright lights. I I like to say everybody's interests are great. Uh, no, full, fully fully agree and and have questions for everybody as as this carries on. Um, but no, in the in the state of the markets, I I think you've you've put out a couple really really great great tweets that uh that that showed just how far year over year down we have come. Now. I, I guess I guess we mitigate this internally a little bit uh, with with the reality that these are leveraged vehicles on on the common share. If the asset class is under pressure, well, what do you think happens to the leveraged vehicle? Um, so so in our minds, at least, um, that's that's where we we really start to look a lot more at the deadline dates. Uh, for any sort of extensions, that that's the real troublesome zone now. I'm I'm going to say that's that's really where we've become more cautious. A lot of these teams have gotten their extensions, no problem. Uh, we have been in a couple of the liquidations, so obviously those make you a little gun shy. Both of them were were gamble sized plays, so not anything significant, but still, you know, gone money's gone money, and uh, and when you say liquidations. You know, I did have to kind of run the numbers on that. What's the general risk risk percentage that we're looking at? You know, in, in a lot of cases, at least right now, we still haven't faced that precipice of of a mass liquidation event. Nor nor do I actually still think that we're going to find that. I think we're going to see extensions that that run into to long term companies. Whether the SEC guidance is good or bad, I mean, I think that's a that's a general question we all have to ask. I, I don't mean the actual rules themselves because I hate them, but the 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 reality of having some sort of framework that they are now required to relieve the backlog and adhere to from a government perspective. Um, if if that ends up being the result, and good teams can still operate under those conditions, you know, it seems like something that'll get passed off to the lawyers and accountants. Uh, and the teams will be a little more diligent on the deals that they bring forth. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I have to second the the comment you made on Grinder earlier. I mean, the thing was trading at twenty cents and rallied up into the eighties. Uh, still holding it now. So, I mean, obviously, there's still interest at the right price um, for that speculation. That being said, you know, another great example was was the OTRA. Um, I hate to say I've owned that thing for a year. Much higher cost basis, had brought it down with a couple averages, but I did not like the results when they announced a deal, so I held it. Um, instead of instead of selling it into that that negative sentiment, I held it with the anticipation of high redemptions. I was rewarded yesterday and took the bulk of the exit at 85 cents. And so, you know, it 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 really is a, a game of patience for a lot of warrant holders in these environments when we're not dealing with a deadline. That that's that's really the sentiment that we still have. It's ugly as hell. But as long as we don't have a deadline, we're just shooting for for brighter days in the future. Um, I think less uh, stimulus environment actually will lead more people to be interested in how they can go public. 
Um, maybe we see more people that answer the phone to a spec potential uh, phone call than than we would have seen in the past. But yeah, there's really no 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 great way to paint the scenario here. It it's been ugly in the Warren environment. Um, it's it's taken being very nimble and selective. It, it, scalping has been about the only only place where you can really see some growth. Uh, but that being said, we have still been adding to a few positions that we like, that we think have real potential. We do still see a real uh, disparity between the pre-DA phase pricing on the warrants, um, broken all the way down into you know size of the IPOs and, and warrant terms offered in the unit, uh, et cetera. And, and we've seen a, a pretty big disparity between those and the ones that are in the DSPAC environment. Um, so for us, that's that's also been something that that we're consciously aware of that if we get to the the finish line which again now now there's another big piece of the risk it used to be on the liquidations it used to be on will they find any targets that deal termination risk has really become such an elephant in the room that now when you get a merger announcement um, most of those are subdued because will they make it to the end? Will they get all the way there? There's been enough people that have been soured on that, uh, that there is some trepidation, I would say. You know, and I, I think a lot of those questions could be could be fielded over to Jeremy, you know, r- realistically looking at it from the SPAC perspective. Um, you know, do you anticipate that, that you know, we'll see a more favorable target environment uh, in a recession? which we could potentially have inadvertently found ourselves in, even though everybody predicted, you know, you're just printing money. But but the reality is they might have raised the, the rates a little too fast or, or whatever the case might be. But but no, so I'd, I'd throw it back out there. But but no, obviously, I'm still trying to keep a bullish sentiment on the future because I don't see deadlines tomorrow on a lot of our holdings. I, I, I think I will like to see how this summer plays out I would like to see how any rule proposals get get formed, whether or not we get a concrete roadmap, uh, and, and whether or not they have any intention of relieving the bottlenecks, even even in today's environment. Because um, I, I think they're responsible for a, a good deal of this slowdown, and, and, and somebody should hold them liable. Uh, but it is what it is. Yeah, one thing that I wanted to touch on, because there's been a lot of attention paid to DSPAC performance, which for the most part, has been quite poor, and many people tend to shun the SPAC asset class and process as the cause of that. However, I think that you know a lot of the blame can be put on just the sectors that many SPACs focused on over the past couple of years, which has been that sort of disruptive innovation, which has really come out of style and was trading at you know, tremendous valuations. We could blame that on the Fed. You could blame that on investors, whomever. But the fact of the matter is that the point that I'm trying to make is that it's not necessarily the asset class that is the cause of that, but more so the segments that it targeted. Like, for example, you look at some recent IPOs, Robinhood down 70%, Rivian down 80%, DD Global down 90%. So it's not just a DSPAC issue. It's all these hyper-growth type disruptive innovation plays 
however they've gone public, is down significantly. DSPAC or IPO, and the surprising thing is you're finally starting to see it crack. In the private markets, it was funny how Acorns had a deal to go public through a SPAC and they canceled it. And they're like, oh, forget that. This was about six months ago or so. They're like, oh, we'll just do a financing in the private market at a much higher valuation. But I think that option is out the window now that VC firms are finally starting to price in this new reality. And sector rotation is something that I want to touch on. But prior to getting into that, Jeff, you did mention the warrant bloodbath. And I look at the data, average warrant trading at 26 cents. Now, another data point we look at is, say, even on an average DSPAC that trades down to $5 at a volatility of 30 to 40% in a five-year term, Black-Scholes states that that warrant should trade at a buck. And if you look at, you know, many DSPACs, even that they, they've done poorly, you know, the warrant values tend to converge around a dollar. And that's typically what sponsors have been paying for their risk capital warrants. And now the average SPAC warrant at 26 cents to me implies roughly 75% liquidation rate. Now we currently have 608 SPACs out searching for a deal. A 75% liquidation rate implies 450 SPACs liquidating, which to me seems quite bearish forecast in terms of what warrant prices are effectively saying is going to happen. Granted, you know, we are in a potential recession. There's a bear market specifically in growth names and certainly tough out there and combined with regulatory pressure. However, we have only seen four SPAC liquidations year to date. Granted, there is quite the maturity wall coming up in Q1 of 2023. Just wanted to get everyone's outlooks with respect to liquidations, you know, this year into next and ultimately what you think is the future of the SPAC. Jeremy, yeah, um, no, I think that was that was a good segue because we're out there hunting. We're obviously a sponsor looking for deals, and we speak to many other sponsors. And that maturity wall you mentioned is pretty remarkable. It's um, it's pretty crazy to just see that. You know, I think the numbers are seventy five, ninety eight, one hundred and ten between January, February, and March of twenty twenty three, and you really need to be announcing a deal in September, October with this SEC review process to get closed in that amount of time. So there's a ton of ex- extensions or just people that just don't have enough time to get a deal done and have to liquidate. Um, and that's our view as a sponsor. Um, I think that's very realistic. And I think the warrant pricing and the volatility pricing is probably pricing that correctly. I would say not even bearish. I think that that is realistic, unfortunately, just given the market dynamics at play here. Um, so I think that is reality. And I think overall, we are we are speaking to targets. And I think the unfortunate thing about the SEC rules and the slowdown in SPACs is you have people that are very focused on the SPAC asset class as almost bad actors. But the reality is, as you said, there are so many IPOs that have massively underperformed relative to SPAC IPOs. And overall, we're out speaking to founders and entrepreneurs who have built incredible companies. And unless you're the blue chip of blue chip, you're not getting access to banks to do a traditional IPO. That narrative is true. It's 
more true than ever. And in this environment, I think the SPAC product really is a bull market product. So in a bear market, you have a slowdown. That's natural. The new issuance market in general is slowing. And that's across the board. But I think for us, we're really just focused on trying to get a good deal done. And I hope all their sponsors realize that if you can't get a good deal done, don't force a shitty deal. That's just, uh, that doesn't, that doesn't end well for anyone involved. And, you know, we have a first deal that isn't trading well at all. And so we've learned the hard way that it's very tough to put forward a deal that doesn't end up uh, performing to your expectations. And now a word from our sponsor, Accelerate, one of Canada's most innovative and fastest growing alternative investment solution providers with a suite of institutional caliber alternative ETFs for investors seeking diversification and long-term performance. The Accelerate Arbitrage Fund, symbol ARB on the TSX, is the world's first SPAC-focused ETF with a diversified portfolio of SPAC and merger arbitrage opportunities in an easy-to-use, low-cost ETF. The Accelerate Arbitrage Fund ETF trades under the symbol ARB on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Yes, some good points there. And then with respect to liquidations, the uh, well, one stat that I wanted to go over is that last year, I believe 75% of the IPOs were SPACs. So keep that in mind that they've really taken over the new issuance segment of the market. And with respect to these you know, bearish or perhaps the market's right in terms of large-scale liquidations that we are still seeing IPOs. Like I said, uh, already six IPOs in two weeks this month. Um, and we saw four this week in raising about a billion additional capital. So some sponsors seem to not care about any of that and willing to go for it in any event. And one thing that I wanted to discuss is this big sort of sector rotation, obviously, that disruptive innovation segment of the market, whether it's electric vehicles, battery charging, battery technology, all these hyper-growth space, fintech, etc., really gone out of favor uh, in the public markets. And you see that in the new issuance market as well. Valuations have dropped dramatically. Some of these stocks down 80 to 90%. So massive drawdown there. And uh, a huge sector rotation into the more value segments of the market. One of the only sectors that's up year to date, energy, oil and gas. So ESG funds really messing out on that. Just wanted to have a discussion on sort of this sector rotation happening. There's the whole SPAC business combination angle. Are we going to see oil and gas deals? And then just, you know, regular equity investing or other asset classes. Do we see a resurgence in you know, value investing, focus on valuations, free cash flow, other traditional businesses, oil and gas, energy, mining, things of that nature, and investors becoming less enamored with innovation, ESG. And one a really interesting aspect is you've had this massive move to ESG investing in which many investors view as not including oil and gas or energy in portfolios. And man, that's really hurt them over the past year in terms of returns. And at some point, in my opinion, it can get so extreme that they're just like, ah, forget it. We, we can't keep underperforming like this. 
uh, via these ideologies, and uh, they just have to, you know, probably reverse that ban on oil and gas stocks. But I digress. I want to pass it back to uh, G. What do you think on sector rotations, and what sectors of the market are you looking at? Well, as as we've seen, it's gone to a total risk off sector rotation. Anything that's a speculative, high growth, high you know, as they said back, you know, when it was trendy, the TAM, and I even posted the other day, the, the TAM, TAM doesn't really equal results. So one of the questions you asked earlier is when do we think we see a bottom and when do we see um, a bull market come back? I don't think we even consider any of that until we see some type of appetite for risk. And as you were saying, whether it was battery charges or EV or EVTOL, you know, all of these different things that were were at the height of fashion a year ago in this incredibly aggressive market, which is where a lot of the SPACs were going. You now have seen not just a sector role, but you've seen a whole, you know, um, let's just ignore the whole SPAC asset class that these people clearly had no idea what they were doing. They overpaid for everything. And I, I do think there will be a lot of failures. But I also think that out of this, you know, out of the ashes will be some incredible Phoenix type results. What what they are, I don't know. So I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, I'm looking at 3D printing or I'm looking at, you know, electric vehicle takeoff landing uh, type situations. But one of the things that I found really interesting and I want to touch on is what we saw Rob Stryer of Bullhorn do. And I'm friendly with Rob. Um, nothing I'm going to say is anything outside of what we can all read. But one was another SPAC that we've ever seen take over a public company. And he took over a company that uh, that's going into Bullhorn, hasn't closed yet. But, you know, whether it be medical devices or cancer research or, or, or some type of pharmaceutical, you know, it's a different type of look that we really haven't seen SPACs explore yet, finding companies that already are around and using their capital that they raised to not only um, in- enhance and inject large capital injections into some of these research and development companies, but also take them and, and be able to give them a lift from a lesser exchange to a better exchange, whether it's NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange, because now they meet listing requirements that they either did not meet in the past or were just a, you know, a lesser exchange because they were a lesser deal. And now over time, their valuations come up a bit and they've gotten to a place in their research that allowed for them to have a higher valuation. So I'll, I'll hit mute and I'm, I'm really curious what people think about possibly seeing this happen more and more often. Jeff, what are your thoughts on that notion of these various structures? Perhaps it's sponsors getting desperate or sponsors doing something that's differentiated that hasn't been picked over. No, I think that's that's got to be the name of the game from the sponsor side. Is you, you've got to find creative ways to do this. Uh, there there have to be other sectors. I mean, look at the, the real bottlenecks in society right now, whether it, it be in the supply chain or, or the industrial automation. I mean, there's a lot of keys here that I, I think we could take as cues uh, for for what appears to be things that are going to need to be resolved in the future. And there have to be business entities worked at, working at solving those problems. Um, 
we're seeing it, you know, whether whether it be in in the shipping dilemmas or or uh, uh, the the driving cross country. I mean, again, I know we've had some automated trucks and and things of that nature, and I'm not I'm not saying push another truck down the hill to give us a great spec. But that being said, I think that there's still an appetite in in commercial trucking, um, and and things that are directly obvious to us that are a problem in the supply chain for the manufacture of all of these entities. You know, I can't, I can't say I fault anybody for chasing after some of those other industries as a whole because they were exciting at the time. Uh, we, we've obviously entered different dynamics right now. So, you know, I think that they've got to be nimble. They've got to see what's working for the markets, even in bad markets. I couldn't have necessarily told you that Grinder was going to you know, come up to a, a decent value and stay there, you know, but, but I think, I think along with all that liquidation risk, we really have that, that deal termination risk is almost, almost overriding the pricing for the liquidations. I think that's where the pricing is. That's why we don't see the movement on announcements anymore, because you got to get through the middle phase. You got to get through the combine. The market's not pricing in the liquidations. It's, it's pricing in the, the, the inability to close those deals, um, at least on the warrant side, does that result in the liquidation down the road? I mean, we, we've got a while before we have a really mass elim, uh, element where, where a whole lot are coming due at the same time. But, but again, I, I, I'm, I'm really just of the frame of mind that as we move through this recessionary environment, uh, that we do see deals that are attractive that maybe weren't willing to answer the phone before, uh, looking for the the fastest route to market. Uh, I think that goes along with all of the the biopharmas, biotechs, ultimately, so they get access to the public markets and can do share offerings. Uh, if you have high redemptions, you shouldn't be surprised if they do a share offering, you know, right after they get there, because you didn't leave any money in the kitty. Everybody redeemed. Their whole purpose was to raise money. So. You know, a share offering makes sense to me at that point. So we've got a lot of a lot of elements at play here. Um, you know, what what happens in the future? Well, companies still got to go public. I, I think we'll still see some deal flow, but we need a hell of a lot more than we got right now. Uh, I think we all can agree on that. This is this is uh, a depressing state of deal flow uh, when you're talking a few a week at best. It's just not enough to get the excitement but is also not a lot different than what we're seeing in the depression on, say, the NFTs, uh, crypto. Uh, gold, gold plays essentially the speculative asset uh, bubble of all of them. Um, that entire family is under pressure right now. So it's, it's not just us. Sometimes it feels like you're on an island, but it's actually a continent, and there's a whole lot of states involved here. And, you know, and that's, that's what we see. We see that we're, we're really tethered to the entire speculative environment right now. Uh, and that's what's under pressure uh, as we approach the unknowns of recession and inflation, uh, maybe tethered together there. Yeah, there's a lot of correlations and interrelations between various segments of the market and sectors and asset classes. And one segment that you mentioned, biotech, and have those been slaughtered? One of the worst bloodbaths in biotech I have ever seen. Uh, Huge drawdown, everyone sort of licking their wounds there with seemingly no end in sight. I do want to get to questions in about five minutes. 
prior to taking audience questions, I did want to get everyone's outlook, whether you're a bullish or bearish. What do you think, number one, on, you know, what are you looking at these days? What sectors, what segments, what strategies? And uh, what do you think things will play out? Jeremy, how about uh, you let us know first? Yeah, I think it's it's also kind of building off of the prior points. I think digital assets is a huge growth area. And I actually believe from, you know, firsthand insight that we're speaking to a lot of teams in the digital asset space, crypto related companies, blockchain related companies. Those are going to be great targets for SPACs because they have real issues with going public the traditional way. Banks are not as willing as a SPAC sponsor team to take the risk to underwrite an IPO. So I think there's going to be a lot of asymmetric opportunities in the digital asset space. And we've spent a ton of time, both private and public, looking at that space. And I think that's that's one area. But overall outlook, I would say I am neutral to bearish on where we are. There's, a, there's lower to go and there's a major risk-off environment with a major drawdown that is across all sectors and all assets. And I think people should just be cautious and, um, you know, try to get to as much cash as possible in this environment because there'll be great buying opportunities, hopefully, in the near term. Thanks for that, Jeremy. And I like the digital asset call. I'm also a long-term bull. have a number of projects building in that space. And just wanted to touch quickly on the Luna disaster Oh my God, um, you know, a lot of people losing a lot of money. It went from 40 billion to zero in a matter of six weeks. This Luna cryptocurrency, to me, uh, I always viewed it as a Ponzi that was highly unstable and likely to blow at some point. Unfortunately, it did. And my point there being that when you're dealing with speculative asset classes and risky, highly risky asset classes, which certainly digital assets are, the way that we deal with that risk is sizing appropriately. So to the extent you own NFTs, cryptocurrencies, keep that, you know, to a low single digit portion of your portfolio such that if anything bad happens, you're not hurting too poorly. And we've gone obviously through a significant amount of volatility there. You want to be in a position where you can be on offense, not on defense, such that you know the, the volatility really gets to you. I think you want to stay invested and be diversified. Own asset classes and strategies that can do well in this environment. There are a number of strategies that are actually kicking ass year-to-date with double-digit positive returns. So that really helps smooth the ride, but super bullish on segments of digital assets and NFTs. If you want some names, I'm a long-term bull of Bitcoin and Ethereum. I think the majority of other cryptocurrencies go to zero. I'm bullish on the blue chip NFTs. I think you're going to have tremendous returns from those. But again, nearly all of other NFTs are likely to go to zero. So play very, very carefully in those spaces. Know what you're getting into and do your due diligence. I saw a lot of people getting messed up in Luna and other digital assets. And this extends to any other investments that you're making. Do the work, do the due diligence, know what you own, know, take a look under the hood and know the risk reward profile. Gee, I want to move on to you. What is your outlook? My outlook is incredibly cautious 
Um, what I've been doing in my personal long-term account is with my free cash, I buy SPY and Qs down every five or 10 points. And when I say I nibble, I nibble, nibble, very, very, very small, insignificant buys. I've caught falling knives in my past. I'm, I'm calling this catching falling tax, and I don't mind catching a handful of tax. Um, I have enough capital that if I keep buying them at that rate, the stock market will go to zero before I run out of cash. So as we start going lower, I'll start picking up my pace. But right now, I'm kind of just staying nimble and, and trading things that seem obvious to me. I did want to touch on the the going to cash part of it. Like, I'm not a big fan of that because number one, like market timing is pretty much impossible. And what I see, you know, if you go to cash, that basically says you're going to make, you got to make two smart decisions. Not only do you have to sell at the right time, but you also need to buy at the right time. And everyone that I've met who has made the right sell decision they never make the right buy decision. So it's incredibly tough. But I do like the strategy of perhaps rebalancing and reallocating as you see opportunities or just, you know, steady, uh, systematically uh, legging into asset classes and, and uh, investments that way. So those are my thoughts on you know, that methodology with respect yeah, to can asset I, allocation. Sure. So... I've been through this through many, many cycles. And the reason that I'm still able to do this is because of that. I'm not the most aggressive person on earth when everybody else is being aggressive. You know, I'm not saying I'm Warren Buffett and doing the fear and greed, but things were very toppy and and different things happen in life where, you know, as, as things became um, cash out events, I just did not redeploy and... Though I understand what you're saying, I respectfully disagree um, because a lot of people think ROI is return on investment. But when when things get wiped out, ROI to me is return of investment. And I am happy taking um, taking a push, taking a small loss at this age and this point in my life. Um, my earning my best earning years are behind me, so. For me, I'd rather be safe than sorry. Cash to me is a position and cash is a very good position because that allows me to have clarity in my thinking and it allows me to actually see things for what they are instead of talking my book like so many people do. So again, Julian, I respect you immensely. We've disagreed on things in the past. We can. I, I still, we're friends. And that's just the way I feel. And I don't, I will never buy the bottom. That's why I told you I'm I'm just picking away now. I'm just picking, picking, picking. And the old saying that I was taught as a very young guy in finance, that made zero sense to me at the time. And I was angry at the guy when he said it. It becomes clearer to clearer to me all the time is I'll pay more to know more. I, I would be more comfortable putting my money back into this market at a higher level that is sustainable and we don't have the Jekyll and Hyde whipsaw that we have. So again, everybody does what they're comfortable with and everybody does with their money um, what they see fit. No one will treat your money better than you. So for me, I like to have a clear head. And you know, I said my piece, that's my thesis. And I know I didn't sell the absolute top. I sold a top and I'm buying a bottom. And if I keep buying a bottom here and there, 
at the end of the day, I'll be fine. Oh, and I believe we're in agreement. I also believe cash is a position within an asset allocation framework. More so, what I was rallying against was people who say, oh, uh, you know, I was in 100% stocks, but I got on my broker and I told him to sell everything. Now I'm sitting in cash. I just don't think that works. I think you need a, a long-term plan. And it, as you indicated, G, it should be along your risk preferences. And certainly if that includes a lot of cash to, you know, protect yourself from that risk and volatility, then that definitely makes sense. Um, and certainly that's correlated with uh, assets and age and income and things of that nature. Obviously, everyone's different and everyone has their own comfort level and risk level. So certainly take that into account. I just, you know, it's unfortunate to see investors kind of really freaking out in an, a volatile environment like we're in right now. To me, that indicates, look, they just took too much risk. I like to approach it uh, from the framework of risk management before it's too late. So when things are good, you say, you know, if things were to enter a recession, get shaky, am I comfortable holding this asset allocation? And G, as you indicated, if you do have a cash allocation, that becomes useful when you're rebalancing because your cash isn't going to trade down at all or significantly right so it's it's very useful in a long-term asset allocation when you're doing the re- regular rebalancing if you approach it from a systematic procedural basis then you can reallocate some of that cash into other asset classes when returns present themselves jeff any closing thoughts on your outlook yeah i'd, I'd say that i'm i'm you know probably right there with guru and in fact probably sitting at about 25 percent cash uh Oh, I really, really have just been more cautious than anything. Um, have have definitely taken nibbles as they present themselves, but but yeah, for me, I'm I'm still not a hundred percent sure the the blood is done uh, at any given time. Though I guess that's the real game. Any one of these can bring forth an announcement of a great deal. We we've become far more targeted and cautious in the approach. I'm going to say in looking at which ones have the best potential. Um, previous teams, I, I think, is important. I think teams that have had anything to do with the liquidation in the past have to have a heightened risk across anything else they're involved with. Uh, obviously, they've approved of that liquidation event in another company. Um, so you know, we, we're just very cautious. Uh, Long term, I'm I'm bullish. I'm I believe that growth is the future. I don't think there's any way to uh, to put it back in Pandora's box, but I think it's it's very focused on you know fulfilling the needs of society. Uh, you know, in this short term, while we're dealing with with recession and inflationary environments, um, but I have no problem having some cash on hand, uh, taking advantage of a few of these trades that present themselves, um, and looking at them like short term opportunities rather than. I'm going to hang on to this forever. In positions we're already in, well, most of you know that if you're in warrants, I mean, you're, you're stuck like Chuck right now uh, on a few of these positions, unless you want to take a massive haircut. Uh, so for us, we've just we've just held on tight, looking for some incredible deals to buy the bottoms, whatever you could perceive that as, uh, and and looking for brighter days. So that that's our take on it. Great, thank you, folks. I did want to invite anyone up for questions so raise a hand if you have a question just wanted to touch on you know my outlook in general i like to have diversified asset allocations such that if i if i include 
uncorrelated asset classes or perhaps even negatively correlated asset classes, then, you know, some of my strategies are doing well year to date and you know, I can rebalance with those and I'm not facing large drawdowns. It makes for a much smoother ride. But that being said, you definitely want to manage your risk. And remember, you got to be in it to win it. So if you're allocating to stocks, just know that stocks can go down into a bear market down 20%, like what we see in US stocks, Canadian stocks down less, down 10%, just because they have that oil and gas exposure, which has definitely outperformed significantly. But recognize that you know, stocks can drop 30, 40, 50%. Cryptos can drop 60, 70, 80% or more. Uh, so size those appropriately and make sure you can stay in it because you got to be in it to win it. And I was like the analogy that if you want to be a professional boxer, or a professional fighter, you step into the ring, look, you're going to get punched sometimes. Uh, investors were getting punched up, beat up a bit here, but we got to just get through it. And if you throw in the towel, uh, between rounds, when you're on the stool there, then that's it. Game over. So you want to be make sure that you get through the tough periods that we're going through right now. And the way that you do that, diversify, manage your risk, and you know, long-term asset allocation. All right. Any questions? I will bring up uh, Roth Overlord here. Invited you to speak. How are you? Hello. Can you guys hear me? Yeah, coming through. I actually I have a question for uh, Jeremy in terms of looking for deals and how that's been going. Is it is it mostly that when you're I guess interacting with these these companies, is it mostly that right now is it just that the volatility is too much, or is it more so that they just have just general disdain for SPACs? Even if you explain to them, you know, IPOs have done have fared pretty much the same uh, in this environment, and let's say that. Is it right now, is it just really tough to find a deal or there are plenty of deals that you could do? They just aren't great ones. Not sure if Jeremy heard that. He could be disconnected. I know he had some connectivity issues. Oh, here we go. Oh, hey, wait, I I totally missed the question. I didn't hear the past like 45 seconds. Uh, I'll I'll mention again. I apologize. No worries. No, the, the question was when you're talking to these companies, is it more just general volatility right now or just general disdain for for going through a SPAC in terms of finding a deal? And also, could you find, if you had to find a deal, would you be able to find one? Is it more just right now, it's just tough to find a good deal or is it just like almost impossible to find any deals right now in this current environment? Oh, got it. Awesome. Well, that's a very good question. I apologize. I'm actually driving, which I hit a rough patch, but we are speaking to... Um, a lot of different companies. And I think overall, there's just a caution around getting public in this market. But there is no shortage of companies that want to be public. Um, So I would say the answer is really, there are quite a few companies that want to go public. Actually, a bunch that we're speaking to, obviously, because we're a sponsor that are intrigued by a SPAC that don't think an IPO makes the most sense for them. But overall, the market from a new issuance perspective and an IPO perspective is just closed for the time being. But I would say we're going to see, because we're close to other sponsors, we're going to see deals get announced in the next two, three months. And I think that there, there's going to be a pickup because there's quite a few in queue as at the moment. Um, but yeah, in short, there are companies that are looking to go 
public via SPAC or IPO. They're just waiting to see um, if things can stabilize. Yeah, thanks so much for for answering that. I have a couple other questions, but I'll let uh, some other people go. I'll go for it. How about one more, and then we'll wrap things up. Oh, I can I can ask one more. I don't want to take someone else's question. Yeah, go question. for it. No, go for it. Um, so you said there's a lot of companies that uh, you're looking at, uh, Jeremy, that you know that want to go public. I guess given that, why do you think that there will be so many liquidations if there's all these companies that want to go public, and also like if you were in this, if you were in the situation where you were coming up against the deadline, and you have risk capital, like is there really any situation that the the SPAC sponsor isn't going to extend? What does it does it not in most cases make more sense to extend if they do have that risk capital, or do you think that there'll be a decent amount that would just be like, you know what, I just can't find anything; it's just not worth it. I'm going to step away. I think Jeremy's having some connectivity issues, but in any event, yeah, like, I mean, we have seen that happen. The vast majority are extending here, but we did see some just throw in the towel. They're like, you know, no more. Either they just feel like they're throwing good money after bad, or they're just like, you know, it's a tough market. That way, if I, if I just let it liquidate, then... Yeah, we we take this loss, but I'm not going to risk you know, my reputation on doing a crappy deal, right? So I'd expect that um, you know it's a it's a mix of both those sentiments. But as what we're seeing in the market thus far, the majority are extending instead of liquidating. So it's something that will close to definitely monitor closely. I see that Jeremy is requesting here. See if we can get a quick comment from him. Jeremy, can we get your outlook on extensions from sponsors or just throwing in the towel? Yeah, I think uh, it's it's tough. It's tough to throw in the towel and you and lose your risk capital. But I think that that's what a lot of firms need to end up doing. Because you don't want to bring down a bunch of investors with you if you're bringing a shitty deal. Pardon my French, but I think overall, what we believe is going to happen is extensions are going to become more difficult when you face, you know, hundreds of them in Q1 and Q2 of 2023. And a lot more sponsors will just decide to throw in the towel. Um, So I think it's tough to do that. And there's deals out there to do. But I would be, as an investor, very cautious of the types of deals that will get brought to market around some of these, um, you know, liquidation dates, because ultimately they're deals done in a, in a stage of desperation. And that's just the honest truth. All right. Well, we'll wrap up State of the Market 6 right there. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, G. And thank you, Jeff, for your participation. Always love chatting with you guys. And thanks to the listeners who tuned in. I hope you have a fantastic Friday and wonderful weekend. Take care, everybody. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast 
discussed are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.